In great pain, the son cries out to the father. Though not for himself, those whom he had come to save now hold his nails and spit on his face. They jeer and they judge, and all know not what they do. Now there's a king on a cross, and his kingdom's at hand. He's forgiving in word and paying our due. If the Father forgave them, won't he you? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Well, good morning, Menlo Church. Welcome. We are so glad that you are here. A special welcome uh, to all of our campuses around the Bay Area, and especially San Jose and Saratoga, as we talk a little bit about what's next for both of those campuses. If this is your very first time at Menlo Church, I just want to let you know you're stepping into a little bit of a family moment. And so um, if you're like, this is different than church has been for me before. I hope that what you hear is a posture of openness and vulnerability and clarity, even when um, circumstances maybe are hard or difficult. And so I want to kind of give you a heads up that that's coming around some decisions that we've made um, around San Jose and Saratoga specifically. Now, I grew up, uh, before we get there, I want to go back in time with you. I grew up in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, in the early years of my life, my dad uh, was laid off. And early on, that was pretty invisible to us. Uh, we didn't totally know what it would mean. You could feel some strain, but eventually it would be that my dad was out of work for 18 months. And we watched people who kind of like really stepped up in a big way and brought us meals, people who helped us pay bills. I was on the free lunch program at school and all of it was just sort of keeping our head above water. It was a pretty scary time, even for a little kid. And even though my parents wanted it to be invisible for us as kids, we could tell that something was wrong. We could tell that things needed to change. And eventually we had those conversations about the implications of this extended time without a job for my dad and what we could do and couldn't do as a family as a result. And that there were going to be difficult decisions in the short term to set us up for the long term. Now, I want to fast forward to the last few years here around Menlo Church. And as we've kind of think about what church has looked like, we've watched the challenges of COVID that everyone has faced. And then we've watched a difficult season of pastoral transition here at Menlo Church. And lots of churches have had to go through those two things together. And lots of churches got to do that in the last couple of years in a really difficult way. But most of those churches, nearly all of them, got to do those as families, as a community, dealing with that in sort of the confines of that group of people. Menlo Church, you faced it in the headlines on a national level. And I'm so sorry for the pain that that caused you on so many different levels for so many different reasons. And the impact of those significant challenges, they've been masked in some ways, like through a loving family, trying to kind of keep it all moving and how do we navigate this well. But as we move forward, we need to have that family conversation like I had to have when I was a little kid. Menlo Church is a multi-site church that functions best when the sites, when our campuses can offer a similar level of care, can offer a similar level of community impact, and can offer a similar level of experience to one another. And right now, our San Jose and Saratoga campuses have just not been able to regain that momentum in this season. 
As a result, we will be merging the San Jose and Saratoga campuses into a new campus at the Saratoga location. More information can be found online, including ways for you to get involved. If you're thinking, what does this look like for me or for our family? Maybe we want to help. We want to help pioneer what God's doing at a new Saratoga campus. We'd love for you to check that out. Now, I want to be clear, this is not an indictment on those communities. They are loving and growing places. It's simply the challenge of how much there is to do in two different locations simultaneously, how much energy, resources, and focus we have. In addition to that, we also don't own our San Jose location, and so it was always sort of vulnerable. As a matter of fact, just this week, the developer um, let folks know, like even in the news, that they will be destroying the location that San Jose has been meeting at to build housing in that part of San Jose. And we do own the Saratoga location. So it really becomes a conversation about where we can invest for the years ahead. Now, I want to apologize to you if um, for you, you're part of one of those campuses and this is the first time you're hearing about it. Um, that was never our intent. We had a series of communication, some emails that went out. If you didn't get any of those, you can go to the Info Central area at one of your campuses and folks would love to make sure that you're signed up for one of those email newsletters. If you're watching online, you can also indicate there that you'd love to be included in future updates. I know that this is a lot to take in, and if you don't attend one of those campuses, it might feel like, Phil, why are you telling us? It's because we're one church in multiple locations, that we celebrate with one another and we grieve with one another. We bear with one another in the easy times and the challenging times. That's what it means to be a community together. See, the staff at this new Saratoga location will be different. The campus will receive significant investment for the future. And we will be using this campus at Saratoga as a concept site for the future of what we think ministry shifts have actually already done. And we wanna learn as we do these investments and see what works, what we might be able to do through other parts of Menlo Church as well. I believe that the new Saratoga campus will serve all of us through what it learns and the impact that they're able to have in that community. Now, my mom, when I was young, she tells me that what I would do during that season, I was just really, really scared that we would eventually end up on the streets without a place to live. And well, I know that's a reality for many and I don't wanna minimize it. What I was really asking at that time as a little boy was, are we going to be okay? And Menlo Church, we are going to be okay. There are decisions, changes, and right-sizing that we need to do for the church today. And this is not the end of those decisions. But for where God is taking us to tomorrow, we can believe that these changes will help us get there. God has been so faithful to Menlo Church for nearly 150 years. And this is my commitment to you, that even when difficult news comes, you will hear about it openly and directly from me. So I hope that even if you're new around here or this is your first time, what you hear is a a community of imperfect people trying to pursue the perfect hope we find in Jesus together. More information is available online, but before we dig into God's word and continue our series together, would you pray with me? God, we lift up as a community, a season and a situation that's bigger than any of us that only you can handle. We pray for families in San Jose and Saratoga that this directly affects uh, we pray for those who are grieving loss and change. And God, we pray that as a community, we would come alongside and support them and love them well. 
And we do, we pray for the future. Pray that no one would get left through the cracks that would slip, God, that, that there really would be thoughtfulness and care for each and every person to find a home. We love for that to be at Saratoga, but uh, God, we, we know that your church is much bigger than just Menlo. And so help us to remember that even in this season. God, thank you. Thank you for the wisdom of leaders. Thank you for the kindness that you offer us, even in the difficulty of these changes. Would you be with us now, even as we prepare to celebrate Easter together through this series? Help it to be more than a tradition. Help it to be something that transforms us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that I like to do around Menlo these days is I will look at my watch and I will say, um, I am 57 days old in Menlo time. I've not been here for very long. As a matter of fact, for a church that's almost 150 years old, 57 days is pretty young, right? You're like, you look, you look great for 57 days. Thank you so much. <laughs> there are a lot of things that we do or that we don't do here at Menlo for some really good reasons. And we have great history behind many of them. As a matter of fact, this binder right here, I genuinely didn't know that binders were made this large. See this? This is just... It's like, this should be two binders. Can we just all accept that? Uh, anyway, this binder is given out to every new board member, uh, every member of our session, every one of our elders gets this binder. And so that's why I have it. And of course I read it at night devotionally just before I go to bed, um, memorize it just personally, you know? But it, it looks back, it looks at the decisions and the direction and discussions that have existed and the policies that have come out of it. And there's so much of it that we could very easily forget. Maybe in your work, you have a binder like that, or you have a, a thing you can go back to that shows you the history of your family. Maybe you have scrapbooks that that's like your family thing, or you have the shared photo album on your phone that everybody adds pictures to. Lots of us have something like this that chronicles our past because it's so easy to forget otherwise. But our past will always, always, always inform our future. Last week, we started our new series, our series for Lent or springtime called Last Words, where we're looking at some of the very last words that Jesus said on the cross in anticipation of celebrating Easter together when we remember Jesus' death and resurrection to provide a path of life, hope, and eternity with God. Now, the church historically has referred to these 40 days leading up to Easter as Lent, where we fast from something to create focus for what matters most. That's what we talked about last week, if you missed it. This week, we are going to talk about the underlying forgetfulness that we all carry and the way that this forgetfulness in the hearts of Israel was ultimately forgiven by Jesus on the cross. They had their own library of history, their own binder that they could look back on, but it was so easy for them to assume it rather than consume it. So easy for them, just like us, to take God's faithfulness for granted. I'm sure you've heard this quote before. Those who forget their past are destined to repeat it. The reason that we say that quote is because it's so true, because we see it all the time. Individually, we see it as a society. We see it globally. I bet that there are mistakes you've made in the past or even tendencies that you have or that your family has in your story that if you're not mindful of their impact, you will slip back into some of those same patterns. Maybe it's an inappropriate relationship, cheating your way to get by with just cutting some corners. Maybe it's using substances like alcohol to cope with things that there are better answers to, but not easier ones, right? 
if we remembered how bad the consequences were last time for us or for someone else, if we remembered how much it hurt us or hurt someone that we loved, we would probably resist that temptation more than we might otherwise. But that's not a new reality for us in this moment. As a matter of fact, that tendency towards forgetfulness, it's been around as long as time itself. Actually, in some of Jesus' final moments on earth, he addresses this very idea with us and shows you and me that God can forgive your forgetfulness. And it's a really good thing because we need that. There are so many different ways and so many different things that we forget. We're stepping into a story in the life of Jesus as he hangs on the cross. And if you're new or newer to this conversation, I'll catch you up, but it starts with us choosing to look at the moment to look at the moment. And if you have grown up in church or you've been through some Easter messages before, Lent messages, I just wanna, I wanna challenge you to actually look at the moment, to place yourself to actually see the difficult and challenging scene that we step into here. Last week, we looked at Jesus' 40-day fast and how he successfully endured temptation before his public ministry began. And this week, we're actually jumping forward those three years to Jesus' final hours on earth as he hangs on the cross. He has performed countless miracles. He had shown signs and taught with an authority that no one has ever heard before. And now he hangs on the cross because See, from the perspective of the religious leaders, he needed to be killed because he represented a threat to their system, a threat to the control and authority that maintained their traditions. Because of this, they concocted fake charges. They had a show trial. They pushed for an overnight sentence of execution and series of events that actually violated their own laws because they felt that upholding their religious traditions was worth the compromise. The government rulers, they were stuck in between because they knew that Jesus' followers represented a threat if all of a sudden they weren't happy, but so did these religious leaders. And so you have in one case, Pontius Pilate, who is so concerned about what blowback might come for him that he washes his hands of it. He says, do whatever you want to do. I'm not going to be involved. And then we have God. God was allowing the cross because it was always the plan. This was not a new idea. This was not a contingency option. This is what God had planned from beginning to end. The gospel message or the good news is what it means. It required a perfect substitute for you and me. And that was always Jesus. Whereas the early church recorded it, for our sake, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So after being tortured, publicly humiliated, and now nailed to a cross, we find ourselves joining Jesus in the early hours of the morning as he hangs after an unjust, unethical, and illegal show trial that had taken place overnight. But Jesus is not alone. The moment includes others too. We read about it here. It says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were crucified with him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, to understand why this detail is relevant, you have to understand the nature of the cross. We have been desensitized to the cross. For us, the cross is a piece of art. It's an object in our worship, hopefully never an object of our worship, but it's an object in our worship. But that is not how they thought about or experienced the cross at the time. See, 2,000 years ago, the cross represented the most excruciating, painful, and graphic way to execute someone that they had. It was the equivalent of their electric chair or lethal injection. 
If your guilt was so egregious and they felt it was so beyond question, this was the sentence. And well, most of the time we portray Jesus on the cross with a loincloth on, it's likely because it was most common that Jesus and these criminals were completely exposed, hanging there because the point was maximum humiliation. This was not art. This was actually designed so that other people would say, I better not do that. And if this moment feels heavy, especially if you've never let yourself imagine it, it's because you're thinking of it correctly. It's always a challenging tension to manage as we talk about Jesus on the cross, to make it vivid enough to be realistic without being so detailed that it becomes voyeuristic. As a matter of fact, 20th century author and pastor C.S. Lewis, he has a thoughtful take on this moment. He says, he creates the universe already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross. The flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the messial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of loves. So, on one cross, we have the sinless savior of the world. And on the other crosses, next to him, we have criminals who were exactly where they deserved to be. Exactly where we deserve to be. But God's love compelled him to cure the disease of sin once and for all. And if maybe for you that word sin is this word you've heard used, but you're not regularly in church or you're like, I should have asked that question a while ago. What does that mean? There are basically two ways we think about sin. One is the choices that we make that fall short, fall short of God. But the Bible actually says that even if you don't know God, even if you don't know the standards of God's holiness, we fall short of our own standards. That's this little reminder that we can't even keep our own stuff straight. And then there's this other thing that sits underneath that. That's our sinful condition. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that sin is in the human genome. We all inherited it. It's the reason that we make sinful choices. And Jesus came to die on your behalf and to come back from the grave to solve both. See, the place that we find them, the skull, or uh, if you've ever heard of the term Calvary, we get that from the Latin term. It's this hill that would have been prominent. The entire point was that other people would see how embarrassing and painful this experience was to prevent them from doing something similar. Now, this may be the very first time that you have let yourself visit this in your mind. This moment with Jesus surrounded by criminals, bleeding and dying. But don't look away. This is not a fairy tale. This is a historic event that took place 2,000 years ago for your benefit. A historic event that has been corroborated not only from inside of the Bible, but from beyond it. The next part of the scene that we see, it requires us to do more than just look at the moment. It requires us to listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. A part of my personality that I regularly have to surrender over and over in my relationship to Jesus is my tendency to not Listen well. If you don't believe me, my wife's in the front row. You can ask her. 
Seriously though, I process pretty quickly in conversations and so my tendency is to listen closely until I have the solution, or at least I'm convinced that I do. (laughs) I hear, but I don't listen. I listen, but only to formulate my response. I'm not proud of that, and God has grown me a whole lot in that over the years, but if I am not careful, if I am not intentional, if I am not present in the moment, that is very easy for me to fall to. How about you? How about your pursuit of Jesus? Are you more interested in the fix for your situation or a life fixed in him? It is so easy to mix those two up. This moment in Jesus' life, it gives us a chance to more closely see the heart of God as the author of life waits for his moment of death at the hands of his creation. Our author, Luke, who is a physician by trade, he writes the most detailed account of Jesus' life and ministry informed by eyewitness accounts, and he records this statement from Jesus, our Lord. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is laboring to breathe. His vocal cords are dry from dehydration. His body is weak from torture. And so every word, every word that he says is a word that he painfully delivered. Now, other authors of the Bible didn't necessarily know that their words would carry on, but Jesus did. Jesus took that painful breath and offered those difficult words so that you would hear them 2,000 years later. Last week, we talked about the divine mystery of something called the Trinity, that we understand from the Bible there is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In this small sentence, we see a prayer from God to God, that Jesus is asking with his words what his actions are about to empower. Let that inform the way you think about God's love for you. Forgive them? Who is them? In Jesus' sightline, through the sweat and blood that is pouring into his eyes, making it painful to look, he, with mixed focus, sees people around him, some of whom he has known, some of whom he has never met. Some of them have been in the same crowd that just days earlier were calling him the king, and now were cheering him on to be executed and mocking him. The soldiers, the criminals next to him, the crowd of onlookers, Jesus saw a sea of humanity. Some of them were gloating, but they had no idea that the unjust punishment they were giving to Jesus was permitted by God so that the just punishment that they and we deserved could be poured out on him. That's what we celebrate at Lent. If you're a follower of Jesus, at some point you've had to embody this sentence. At some point, you had to think that Jesus offered this prayer, Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. They don't know what they are doing. You had to admit that you needed help. You had to admit that you didn't deserve it, that this undeserved favor of grace from God was the only means by which you could be saved. The reason that we do this, right, is because if you're not a follower of Jesus, We talk about this as the first step, that your ignorance to the call, calling, and standards of God, they are not excuses to God. We've all turned away. We all needed God's perfect love in Jesus, that his sacrifice is the only means by which we can be saved. God's standard is perfection, and Jesus met it for you. 
The reason that we work to focus and remember this incredible act of love is because Jesus is our mediator. Even right now, working to draw us closer to himself. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, that our understanding and experience with God is not under the agreement between God and man of the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, but this new agreement, this new covenant is because of what Jesus has done exclusively. This new agreement between God and mankind was made possible through this sacrifice. He is the only means by which we can be saved. And the fact that he is willing to go to these lengths to communicate that to us is such good news. Finally, in this scene, we have one more thing that we would be wise to notice. Don't just look at this moment. Don't just listen to the words of Jesus. Remember what they forgot. Remember what they forgot. Remember when I showed you this binder over here? Well, it turns out that actually for Israel, they had kind of their own binder of God's faithfulness. When you think about your Bible, you think about your Bible as a book, but your Bible is actually a library of books. And they're split into sections. And what this gap is, is the New Testament that you think about. These other sections are the binder of God's faithfulness to Israel. And as a part of that, the record of the history of God's people and how God promised some pretty incredible things for the future of God's people. Where we get in trouble is when we take these books written about God's faithfulness to his people Israel, and we're not looking for principles in them. We're not necessarily looking to find out who God is in them. We're looking to read them as though they are devotionally all written instantly for us. And there's something for us in them, but it requires the work of understanding that we are reading about God's faithfulness for thousands of years. And not only that, we are reading about the promises of that faithful God to do the thing that Israel had at its crowning achievement to bring about the savior of the world. And it was all recorded in those books. See, in this scene, we see people who had forgotten about some of these books. Specifically, they forgot not only the way that Jesus would show up, the way that the Messiah would be described, but also the way that people around the Messiah would be described. And they didn't realize that some of the very things that they were doing were some of the things that were described of the Messiah. It says that they cast lots and they divided garments. They were gambling over Jesus' possessions. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him uh, sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. See, they had forgotten that for thousands of years, God had been promising the arrival of the Messiah in these very pages, the rescuer. It had been so long that many of the leaders forgot what they should be looking for, not just in the Messiah, but in those around him. A book of poetry written hundreds of years before Jesus' earthly ministry called Psalms in the Hebrew scriptures, it talks about people literally doing exactly these things, mocking the Messiah in exactly this way. They are doing what we see lots of people do. Maybe they're doing what you've done. 
They're saying, I'd believe in Jesus if he would do one more thing. Just a little bit more. Just one more sign. Just come through one more time. The Jewish leaders mocking Jesus had grown up learning and listening to the promises about the Messiah. They had seen Jesus do things that no one had ever done before. They had heard Jesus teach things that they had never heard before. They just hadn't seen enough. Can you relate? Maybe for you, you've made deals with God. If you could just pass that exam, if you just get that promotion, if you could just save your marriage, if God could just come through in this circumstance in your life, you know the deals. But how quickly do we forget God's faithfulness? How quickly is it about the next deal? Actually, in our very own community in the Bay Area, we've seen this same phenomenon. For years, a trademark of Steve Jobs' keynotes at Apple was this exact idea, the one more thing construct. Some of the biggest advancements and news items that were given in those keynotes were the very last thing that Steve Jobs offered. And it was one of the things that made the transition from his leadership to Tim Cook's most difficult because this idea of how do I top this one, how do I top this one, and how do I top this one? At some point, Menlo Church, who God is, and now he has shown himself faithful, it has to be enough. Because if God is only one more thing away from your worship, you will never worship him. And if that is the way you think about God, I have bad news for you. What you are worshiping is not God. You are worshiping what God has done for you. At some point, we have to worship God on who he is. And the good news is that God can forgive your forgetfulness. He can remind you and me of who he is. For some of you, that's exactly what God wants to do through Lent this season. You have just forgotten. We live in a society where we are constantly being inundated with the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And we have this great experience with God. We have this great way that God has shown up and been thankful. And we're thinking to ourselves, great God, but like, what have you done for me lately? What if God could remind you of what he has done for you eternally? The best thing for some of you to do is to spend some time this Lent season writing out some of those past deals that you made with God. God, if you would just, and remember how he did. Remember his faithfulness time and time and time again. And maybe that God who has always been faithful will still yet be faithful. For some of you, you're gonna discover that he came through in areas that you never asked for. And if you had asked for it, he came through better than you would have asked for it. Menlo Church, we're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And it's not because of what you hope God does today, but because of how he has shown up and been faithful for so many yesterdays. Sometimes when I'm visiting my mom back in Ohio, I'll run by our old house that I grew up in when my dad had those, or that layoff, we were, we were, he was out of work for 18 months and when you grow up in a home with abuse and trauma and an abusive father, um, stuff like that brings lots of mixed emotions. But it also reminds me of this powerful truth that God was with me then. He's never left me and he's with me today. And he wants to be that for you too. I wonder for you, where has ignorance or forgetfulness 
been an excuse. For some of you, there are areas of your life that you are choosing not to remember. You are choosing not to learn. You are choosing not to get help. You are choosing to sit in your trauma, your temptation, and your torment, but you don't have to. It took me decades to begin meaningful care with some of my childhood trauma that I experienced, but it didn't have to. I'm so glad that I trusted God enough to believe that he could meet me there, that he could use people that would really genuinely care for me. And I'm just telling you, even if it feels like you're too far gone, even if it feels like you're too far into compromise or addiction, even if it feels like, you know what, I'm just, I'm too old, Phil, I don't wanna do that work, you're not. As a matter of fact, if you still have a pulse, God still has a plan to grow and develop you. And this work, the internal work, is so important because even if you think you are keeping this in, that nobody can see that, that nobody can see how the past forgetfulness of God's faithfulness and the work that he wants to yet do in your life, even if you think you can keep that at bay, you can't, you're leaking. We need God to show up and we need to get help to do it. And so I would just encourage you, maybe start by taking some steps as a community this Lent season. I talked to you a little bit about this last week, but we have so many ways for you in this season leading up to Easter to do this. For some of you, just committing to be a part of weekend services, a part of that at one of our campuses. If you've been watching online uh, for years, I would encourage you that maybe in this season, show up in person to a campus, get to know some other people, make some other people your people. For some of you, that's beyond the weekend, jumping into our Menlo Midweek or Menlo Meditation podcast. Maybe it's grabbing the Lent devotional guide at one of our campuses or online. Maybe for some of you, it's choosing to fast something like we talked about last week, but take a step. It's not too late. And wherever you have failed or forgotten God's faithfulness, remember that God can forgive your forgetfulness. He told us that 2000 years ago. He took that painful, deep breath on the cross with blurry eyes stained by sweat and blood. He looked at people just like you and me. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that's still his prayer for you today. Can I pray for you, Menlo Church? God, thank you. Thank you for all the ways you show up when we don't. Thank you for all the ways that you're faithful when we're faithless. Thank you for the gift that you give us of grace that is unending. God, would you help somebody here, somebody at one of our campuses, somebody watching online to just right now let that hit them for the very first time. We know that you can do it. We believe that you will. God, cut through those excuses in our lives. Give us a fresh perspective of what it means to know you break into those areas of our lives that we've quarantined off, that we've decided are too far gone. And God, help us to trust you for the first time, or for some of us, God, for the first time in a long time. God, we love you. We seek you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.